0: All you poor workers Good news to you I'll tell How the good old union Has come in here to dwell
2: If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison.
3: Good morning, Tennessee Valley. This is The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of of the tennessee valley the spice radio studio in huntsville alabama today on the show union baseball is coming to huntsville the iron workers local 477 is supporting folks out in jackson mississippi the memphis seven are going back to work and adam is going to be giving us a history lesson about the desegregation order in huntsville and its effects on the school board race today and more. And we have more folks on today's program. So if you want to be part of the show, we've got a phone number and the line is open. So you can call or text 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail or send us a text throughout the week. We're actually going to be answering a text message that we got over the week in overtime today, which is our online only, second half of the show for people that are listening to us on the radio. If you want to find that part of the show over time, you can just find us on Facebook or YouTube and continue watching and listening after we go off the radio. Uh, And speaking of online, if you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us online. We're Anywhere you can find anything online. We're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Valley Labor Report. And a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So it really does mean a lot. And my birthday is tomorrow. So give us money, folks. Give us money because my birthday is tomorrow. Happy birthday to me. Um, and you know, we're always, we're on multiple stations. We're on two commercial stations and one nonprofit community station. Um, but we're always looking for more radio stations to put the show on, but we can only do that if we get more money, right? We can only do that if we have enough sponsors and if we have enough sponsors to feel like, you know, we're sustainable adding to our monthly costs, you know? So, uh, so, so... I think it would be great if we could be on the radio in Birmingham and in Montgomery and Mobile in Jackson, Mississippi and Atlanta, Georgia. All of these places, got to have the money for it. Um, so if you want to become a, a sustaining member of the program, make a one-time donation, buy our hat or our stickers. You can go to our website, tvlr.fm slash donate, tvlr.fm slash store, and you can become a patron at Patreon dot com slash the valley labor report and if you're a member of a local union then uh, you should get your local to sponsor the show um and if you're a member of a union elsewhere that you would like to try to get us on the radio well a good way to get us on the radio in your local area would be to get your local union to sponsor the show so that's something to consider um, And we are just going to jump right into Last Week in Southern Labor, folks. Uh, that is a segment that we do every week, mostly, where we tell you what happened in the labor movement in the South. We pull the information from Jonah Furman's newsletter, Who Gets the Bird?, which compiles all of this information for the entire United States. So if you want to see what is going on outside of the South then you should subscribe to that newsletter. It You can find it at whogetsthebird.substack.com. And with that, let's jump into new organizing for the weeks of August 20th through September 3rd. Over the past three weeks, 96 workers at six stores filed to join Starbucks Workers United, including in Washington, D.C. The MLBPA... The Major League Baseball Players Association has officially, they officially distributed union cards to organize the minor leagues. And we are going to have some more on that later. Very exciting news. The UMWA, the United Mine Workers of America, has a deal with electric car battery maker Sparks to organize 350 workers at a plant being built in West Virginia. Around 180 workers at GE in Auburn, Alabama, have announced their campaign to unionize with IUE CWA, as we've mentioned previously. A new federal, a, a new federal report says that there are 300,000 w- federal workers who are eligible for unionization but have not unionized. And that's not just those who don't pay dues, that is those who are not covered under a union contract. For context, AFGE, which is the largest federal union, reports just over 300,000 dues-paying members. So there is lots of room to grow. In election wins and losses, 169 Starbucks workers in six stores, including in Wilmington, North Carolina, voted a combined 69 to 30 to join Starbucks Workers United. Of course, we know here that the Scottsboro, Alabama Starbucks tied, and we are going to be waiting a while for the final results. 160 transit workers for Via, which used to be a rideshare app and is now a, quote, micro transit app, voted 57 to 35 to unionize with ATU, the Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 1177 in Norfolk, Virginia. 89 workers for the Delta Natural Gas Company in Kentucky joined the Utility Workers Union in a 50 to 27 vote. And 18 workers for Maytag Aircraft at Fort Hood, Texas, voted 15 to 0 to join the Machinists Union. 12 workers who do lead paint inspections for inspection. Experts at several locations in Tennessee voted 8 to 1 to join the operating engineers, Local 369. And of the eight workers who make hinges and other steel products for Carlson Manufacturing in Rome, Georgia, three voted and they all voted no on joining UA uh, in a rerun of a March vote that was 0 to 6. So, I guess, in a sense, they improved their outcome, the union did, because uh, it's just zero to three this time. 98 workers at Pinsk, Pinsk Truck Leasing in Cincinnati and er, Erlanger. Kentucky beat back a decertification attempt with the Machinist Union Local 804, 41-28. And we've got lots of strikes and bargaining updates this week. The first up, uh, the day that its employees had planned to go on strike, the Nashville restaurant Chattable abruptly closed for good. Food service workers in the city have been organizing with Workers' Dignity, a local workers' center. The New York Times finally covered the UMWA strike at Warrior Met, and somehow the guy who did the podcast about it claimed he had never heard of Kim Kelly. Wow. That's either, like, either you're lying or that is an indictment of your ability to cover anything.
0: Right. That makes me (laughs) wonder, did you even Google this before you (laughs) did it?
3: In other news about the strike, uh, remember the call that we got from the West Alabama Labor Council A fellow a while back about the secret list of employees that warrior met wanted to fire well warrior met gave the umwa that list this week and the umwa is fighting back contesting the claims and noting that the list just so happens to include union leaders at every single mine and is disproportionately black Non-union school bus drivers in Franklin County, Tennessee struck for two days after being denied a $10,000 raise that was already in the budget, and by Thursday, the county commissioner reinstituted the raise. Direct action gets the goods, folks. SEIU Local 500 struck very effectively for a week at D.C.'s American University and won a contract for 600 staff. We are once again in a cooling-off period in the railroad union negotiations, which affects 115,000 workers across the country. The cooling-off period ends on September 16th, but the rank-and-file does not seem to be cooling-off much at all. The question is whether that anger will be officially channeled into a work stoppage. So far... Five of the 13 rail unions have announced tentative agreements, those being the American Train Dispatchers Association, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, and three unions affiliated with the Machinists, namely the Transportation Communications Union, the Brotherhood of Railway Carmen, and Machinists District 19. All of those unions have announced tentative agreements based on the Presidential Emergency Board recommendations, which is to say, nine have not yet. The Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, affiliated with the Teamsters, already authorized a strike before the Presidential Emergency Board was convened, and the Brotherhood of Maintenance and Way Employees, also a Teamsters affiliate, has sent out strike authorization ballots but has not announced the results. The latest is that the National Mediation Board is apparently ordering negotiators for the carriers and the unions to travel to D.C. on Wednesday to help reach agreements. The 5,900 worker Goodyear slash Bridgestone contract that came down to the wire and includes a plant in North Carolina was ratified by the membership last week. And Cleveland Cliffs and the United Steelworkers also reached a tentative agreement covering 12,000 workers, including some in West Virginia that is now up for a ratification vote. Though the union isn't sharing details publicly or from the chatter that we've seen much with the members. Workers with Unite Here Local 355 at the Diplomat Beach Resort in Hollywood, Florida, which is a Hilton hotel, are taking a strike authorization vote this week. SAG-AFTRA just reached two new deals relaxing employer rules on, quote, exclusivity, meaning when when an actor who's a regular on a show can do other work both with the AMPTP and as a part of a full contract ratification that passed by a membership vote of 89% with Netflix. Union negotiations at the VA, at the Veterans Affairs, are not going well, apparently, as AFGE is calling for the agency secretary to remove the administration's lead negotiator. In political fights, Politico had an exclusive look at how GOP leadership plans to target the National Labor Relations Board and the Department of Labor in oversight hearings if it takes back control of the House in the midterms, as it's looking like they will. There's a difference, folks. That's going to be top of their list if they win the midterms. is targeting the the only law enforcement agencies that help working people. Charlie Crist, Democratic nominee for Florida governor, is uh, going up against the much-hyped Ron DeSantis, has chosen the president of the United Teachers of Dade, the 30,000-member K-12 union, as his running mate. That's really interesting. The National Association of Letter Carriers just mailed their ballots in their elections for national officers. And finally, the ever-essential State of the Union's report for 2022 by CUNY is out and is very much worth your time. The upshot is that we are still in decline despite all the good news of the past year, and there and uh, that's still the headline for the U.S. labor movement. Plus, much more of interest in there, so check it out, folks. Um, In some local news, Ironworkers Local 477 is out in Jackson, Mississippi, yesterday. They donated 120 cases of water bottles to residents of the city. Uh, So we really appreciate their support. They had about um, half a dozen folks uh, drove all those pallets of water. of water bottles out there, and, um, yeah, so we appreciate that, and, uh, there are ways that you can support as well, um, Cooperation Jackson is on the ground now doing mutual aid relief work to help those that are most vulnerable during the crisis, and you can donate at CooperationJackson.org slash donate. The, um... And, yeah, yeah, so uh, heading over to the chat really quick. Appreciate everybody joining. Appreciate everybody listening. Um, tell the people, David says, tell the people why it takes money to get on the radio. Most th- most people think y'all are paid hosts. Yeah, that's right. We are basically, our program is just paid programming. It's like we are paying an hour and a half to be on the radio, uh, and we get that. And, and so we don't make any money. Adam and I don't make any money. Uh, this is all volunteer this is a, this is a labor of love we do it because we think it's important and local unions uh, uh, give us the money to to be able to pay for that time so
0: yeah and I just want to say thank you to everyone who does contribute whether you're a, an official sponsor or whether you've chipped in a few bucks on patreon or uh, you know one-time donations recurring donations if you've bought our merch whatever you've done to support the program genuinely appreciate it Uh those of you who are longtime listeners, thank you for you know your continued support. And for those of you tuning in, maybe for the first time this morning, we welcome you and really appreciate it. Thanks for your time.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. Infinite Content says, good looking for the school bus drivers. Yeah, that's really cool. And Non-Union, too. Non-Union up in Franklin County, Tennessee. Just, I mean, like three miles north of where I live. That's pretty cool.
0: Love to see some uh, Wildcat action get the goods.
3: Yes, absolutely. Infinite Content says, Have you all reached out to the Trillbillies to get some updates on the flooding in eastern Kentucky? Uh, we have not, but they have They have several updates on their podcast feed that I'd encourage you to go listen to. You can find their podcast at the Trillbilly Workers Party, um, wherever you get your podcasts. They've got some really good updates on the flooding in eastern Kentucky for sure. Shout out to Chairman Trash says, shout out to Love Huntsville, who will be volunteering at 5 p.m. on Sunday on Derrick Street across from the train tracks to set up free dinner and clinics for the homeless over there. Shout out to them indeed. That's very yeah, good work.
0: Love Huntsville does some fantastic work, and if you're not familiar with them, uh, I did sit down and interview a couple of folks uh, affiliated with Love Huntsville. Uh, earlier this summer, uh, we were talking about the evictions Planned by the city of huntsville and and some of the really great mutual aid work that they do so yeah appreciate that shout out
3: yes indeed indeed um so the next uh uh we've got some other really good news we appreciate you know the local um iron local going out to jackson mississippi uh that was some good news and here's some even better news it's a good news update on the story of the Memphis Seven. The Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals has rejected Starbucks' appeal, saying that they did not show a likelihood of success. Um, so, that is some very, very good news. And news outlets like ABC News in Memphis are reporting that Starbucks has said they will rehire the seven workers now. Um, you know, not really that they had much of a choice, but. Still, it's good to see that they're finally going to be doing the uh, the right thing. And just as a recap for those folks who don't recall, several months ago, seven Memphis baristas at a Starbucks over there were fired in retaliation for their union activities. And now, about six or seven months later, they're going to have their jobs back. So that is some really, really, really fantastic news. Uh, You can go back and watch our interview with a couple of the Memphis Seven, actually, on our YouTube channel if you would like to check that out really really good stuff so looking forward to seeing some pictures of them uh slinging some coffee again and uh and doing some more good stuff It's gonna be good uh we're going to go ahead and head to a break if you want to jump on the phone you want to chat with us the break is a good time to call in the phone number is 844-899-tvlr that is 844-899-8857 We'll see you on the other side.
4: Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern worker movement. Please visit HometownAction.org and follow our social media channels at hometownaction to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. IBW
1: 558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice.
5: Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know about how viable clean and renewable energy is. To that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to more than thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K 12 students across the state. We're working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about our work work and how you can join us at energyalabama.org.
4: Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org.
5: The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms.
0: Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136 out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org.
3: Come build a better future with us today and join IU Come
0: all you poor workers, good news to you. I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell.
3: Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. And you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison and my co-host is Adam Keller. If you've got anything to add give us a call. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. Hey, here's a fun fact before we go into our um, Adam's history lesson. Did you know, Adam, that employees at the National Right to Work Foundation are eligible for public service student loan forgiveness, but not employees of unions?
0: Interesting. Okay. I knew that employees of unions were not eligible because I was in that category at at one point and and was hoping to combine my Title I teaching experience. Uh, But the Right to Work Foundation. Yes.
3: If you're an attorney. How
0: is that possible? If you're an attorney
3: for the National Right to Work Foundation, you can get your loans forgiven because you're doing, quote unquote, public service. But... If you're an attorney fighting for working people <laughs> against the boss, uh, you have to pay all of that back. You you don't get any break on it.
0: Is it considered like an educational um, operation or something? I think it's considered
3: like a nonprofit kind of thing.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's gross. Super
3: gross. It's
0: BS. And I'm sure they're not uh, turning down that forgiveness oh, either no. out of principle. Of course not. Not that they uh, need the help financially. Of course not.
3: No, it's... Uh, it's insane. Insane. Absolutely bonkers. Looney Tunes. But let's go ahead and get to that history um, history lesson. And, and, you know, so ju- just to... Uh, To set the stage for it, you know, Huntsville, Alabama schools have had a desegregation order on them for a while, like since the 60s, and for some reason, it is still, it's still an issue today, and so we're going to get Adam to give us a bit of a history lesson on that, but to jump in, I want to play this recent clip of Angela McClure on the Dale Jackson show to set this up. McClure had just finished talking about how we need to get the, quote, liberal agenda out of our schools and for some reason talking about the liberal agenda prompted dale to ask mcclure how she thinks we can get out from under the desegregation order so adam let's play that clip the deseg order 1963 going on almost 60 years it has only made the school system worse it probably served a purpose in the early days but i think after 60 years we should be able to get out of this thing uh, it looks like we're further away than we were 10 years ago. What do you think about that? Is there any way to get out from underneath this desegregation order and actually uh, return power to the school board and to the citizens of this city?
2: Well, I would love nothing but that. I think we're only one of three states that even still has a desegregation a, a de- order, which is just ridiculous. And a lot of our policies are connected to this desegregation order and, and as you said 1963 I mean times have changed um, it shouldn't even be uh, something that we have to refer to anymore I am concerned that we gave a law firm a million dollars last year to fight this thing and just continuance after continuance after continuance have been issued it's, it's, it's one of the many areas of our financial system on our budget that is being drained And spent irresponsibly. And I look to leadership to that. I look to the incumbents to that. Uh, Yes, even to our superintendent. Um, We need to cut corners.
3: So.
0: Yes, just what the (laughs) Department of Justice loves to hear. We need to cut corners when it comes to desegregation.
3: Yeah, and so, you know, like, obviously there's some there. There's like a real. Resentment about this desegregation order. And and I guess, you know, like, I want to be charitable and I want to try to understand all sides of this issue. So to, to set the stage for this school board race that Angela McClure is running um, today after she lost her primary bid for state house and then went over to school board. Um, Adam, can you take us back to 1963 when Huntsville City Schools were ordered to desegregate and, like, What did that do mechanically? What were the enforcement mechanisms? How does it affect Huntsville today?
0: Sure. So if you've followed Huntsville City School board races or, you know, really any of the chatter around Huntsville City Schools, there's a good chance you've heard reference to this desegregation order or consent order. Jacob kept hearing it come up in conservative circles, and he asked if I could answer a few questions. What is it? Why was it issued in the first place? What does it do? Why does it seem to cause such angst among some on the right? What does it take to get out of it? And why hasn't that happened yet? So I'm going to try in just a few minutes to answer those questions so folks can have a pretty good understanding of the legal process of desegregation and how it impacts public school systems in Alabama, such as Huntsville's. And um, oddly enough, yesterday was the 59th anniversary of Sonny Hereford walking into Fifth Avenue School, which marked the beginning of integration in Huntsville City Schools. So, you know, seems all the more appropriate that we would discuss this today. Starting out with why was it issued in the first place? Well, first, we have to distinguish between a desegregation order and a consent order or consent decree, as it's sometimes called. Desegregation orders date back to the period after Brown v. Board when racial segregation in public schools was declared illegal. But while the Supreme Court officially outlawed segregation in 1954, unfortunately, black families across the country would be forced over the ensuing decade and a half or so to take individual school districts to court in order to force compliance with Brown v. Board and ultimately secure admission of their children into local public schools. Here in Huntsville, the case is known as Hereford versus Huntsville Board of Education. One by one, court orders to desegregate were issued, and in most places where they occurred, these orders are still in effect, and the court cases are still considered active. So a consent decree or consent order, such as the one currently affecting Huntsville City Schools, is actually an agreement between the school district, the Department of Justice, other parties, and the court. And this consent order agreement lays out the process to successfully complete the desegregation order and fully restore local control over the schools. So the deseg order came in 1963. The consent order, uh, which, as I'll mention, comes quite a bit later, uh, is the pathway to end the deseg order from 1963. And I want to be really clear on this point and pull from the 1992 Freeman v. Pitts ruling which states, quote, the court's end purpose must be to remedy the constitutional violation and, in addition, to restore to state and local authorities the control of the public school. I'm going to quote next from Federal Judge Madeline Heikela's June 30th, 2014 ruling in the Huntsville case. In Huntsville, this desegregation process, quote, began on March 11, 1963, when five Huntsville Public School students, Sonny Wellington Herford IV, John Anthony Bruton, James Bearden Jr., Veronica Terrell Pearson, and David C. Piggy, by and through their parents, filed a motion for preliminary injunction. Herford in the United States v. Huntsville Board of Education has been go- ongoing for nearly six decades since then. Ultimately, when Huntsville City Schools sought dramatic changes to the student zone lines and closure of various schools, the district ran into federal obstacles, and ultimately these negotiations resulted in the spring 2015 consent order, with the end goal of satisfying federal requirements, ending federal oversight, and returning local control. Judge Heikula stated, quote, as the court learned more about the case, two things became apparent. First... The board was interested in more than an isolated order on a discrete student assignment motion. Instead, the board was paving the way for an application for a declaration of unitary status. Second, periods of dormancy had created cracks in the paths toward unitary status. Heikula then goes on to describe how these court orders can be a lengthy process and how in some cases, quote, school districts sometimes prefer judicial oversight To the disruption that may accompany a request for a declaration of unitary status, the final step in a school desegregation action. So that's why you see so many school districts still under these orders from the 60s and 70s with little movement. They just file the required paperwork and check in with the feds whenever they want to change zone lines or build new schools, but otherwise never really try to end the oversight by being granted unitary status. Maybe they reckon it would be too costly, or, you know, maybe they fear what questions might arise during that process. So what does it do? Uh, As I mentioned, the consent order is a pathway and a process to secure unitary status, which would resolve the desegregation order. If you obtain unitary status, it's, uh, you know, consider in the eyes of the court that you no longer operate a dual or segregated school system and... All kids are receiving the same level of education services and offerings regardless of race. So what that looks like in practice is a set of what they call green factors with certain benchmarks for each factor and, of course, a whole lot of data collection along the way. And there are seven so-called green factors in Huntsville's consent order. Number one, student assignment. Number two, equitable access to course offerings and programs. Number three, extracurricular activities. Number four, faculty. Number five, facilities. Number six, student discipline, positive school climate, and effective classroom management. And finally, number seven, transportation. With each of these factors, the school district bears the burden of proof that it no longer operates a racially segregated system. The district must provide detailed reports to the court and the DOJ regarding their implementation and progress. This is where you see data collected on discipline reports broken down by race, enrollment and honors courses broken down by race, the racial identity of people in administration, and and so on. Two of the key student desegregation tactics used are the magnet school programs and something called majority-to-minority transfers, where black students at majority black schools can transfer into majority white schools. And the latter obviously comes with some controversy. Uh, A new student code of conduct also arose out of the consent order, and uh, that was among many other changes impacting both students and faculty. A couple other things out of the consent order. It created something called the desegregation advisory committee, which is meant to serve as an independent body representing public stakeholders as they monitor implementation of the order. Uh, You may occasionally see news articles mentioning, you know, meetings of the DAC. This desegregation advisory committee. And I mean, the name alone throws people off, honestly. Uh, The consent order also requires annual reports by the district on each of these factors where you can see for yourself any racial disparities that may be showing up in the data. You can go to HuntsvilleCitySchools.org and you can actually find the reports they send in to the court and the DOJ every year. So the next question from Jacob was, well, why do right wingers seem to hate this so much? You can probably imagine why some on the right get really upset about this issue based on what I've described so far. There are the usual arguments about federal overreach and and big government. There are also the usual arguments that are ultimately defensive of segregation. Of course, there are the uh, outright bigots who explicitly don't want their kids going to school with those kids. Those bigots are out there, and there's a lot more of them than some would prefer to think. They might choose their words more carefully when in public or around mixed company. But I damn well know what they say to a white man like me when they assume that because I look like them, that I must think like them. But some are less explicit. Some will argue folks choose to live where they want to live. Since schools are based on neighborhoods, the school system shouldn't be punished if people choose to segregate. Now, this obviously ignores the myriad ways these choices are shaped currently and historically by government policies, including those of the schools themselves. It ignores the ways those choices occur in a context of nearly four centuries of white supremacy, in a context of present-day socioeconomic inequality. And it lets government officials, particularly the public schools, off the hook for the ways their actions and inactions contribute to inequality and segregation. Ending federal oversight has long been a goal for the local right, and one can only imagine what they might want to pursue if and when they are freed from the restraints of the court and the DOJ. It's pretty easy to speculate that one goal would be a new high school for the affluent white enclave of Hampton Cove over the mountain, One can also imagine the days of busing black kids from the north end of town to the higher-achieving schools on the south end of town may not last long were it a completely local decision. Of course, when you hear some school board candidates and other folks loudly decry the consent order and federal oversight, well, the more reasons the court and the DOJ have to be suspicious of the district's commitment. Pretty much since the beginning of the consent order, there has been a widespread perception that the schools can no longer discipline students, especially minority students, because of the DOJ or the judge or the consent order or some combination of, the, of those. Huntsville City Schools Administration under Casey Werdinsky and those that followed have obviously had some vested interest in propagating this myth that any student discipline problems in their schools were really out of their hands and the feds were the ones to actually be in blame. Even now, this myth persists. Under the Wierdinski administration, there is great emphasis in the district on, you know, making the numbers look good in regards to discipline, specifically with racial disparities, uh, where you had, and this was confirmed uh, in court, you had black students receiving more severe punishments for the same offenses. So, You know, the goal wasn't so much about the actual substance behind disciplinary reports, but rather it was about the appearance of these statistics and trying to game the numbers uh, that would be submitted to the court and the DOJ. And the way I've compared it is, you know, imagine Huntsville Police Department announced that they were making a commitment to safer roads by deciding they would stop. They would reduce the number of speeding tickets they issued on Memorial Parkway. You know, HPD could report to the public a drastic decline in speeding tickets, but that doesn't actually mean there's less speeding. That was the approach taken by the Werdinsky administration, with both teachers and administrators under heavy pressure to focus on statistics, not results. So in effect, Huntsville City Schools largely abandoned the old school punitive model of discipline, but without truly implementing a new restorative model, which meant we got the worst of both worlds Mm. in my letter submitted to Judge Heikula back during the uh, May 2018 status conference I shared some of these issues and I argued that the consent order was in some ways sabotaged from the start the consent order was signed and has been implemented in the context of corporate education reform budget cuts and privatization which has impeded Huntsville City Schools in its implementation of the consent order and its overall success The administration that entered into the consent order, led by Casey Wardensky, had by that time alienated large swaths of the community and virtually all the employees, which certainly doesn't help reach the worthy goals of the consent order, like equity and closing the achievement gap. It's hard to reach unitary status when you specialize in disunity. And there's also a lot of misperception among both the community and the employees that places blame on the judge or the DOJ for actions and responsibilities of the superintendent and the school board. I believe the Werdinsky administration facilitated these misunderstandings as they were eager for a scapegoat for their actions, whether it had anything to do with the consent order or not. People often forget that Huntsville City Schools chose to pursue and enter into the consent order. It's not as if Judge Heikula or the DOJ decided to march into town and you know, take over our school system just for the hell of it. The corporate reform era in Huntsville City Schools also coincided with an assault on public education at the state level with massive funding cuts, legalization of charters and vouchers, and the weakening of teacher rights and benefits. Around the same time the district pursued and began implementing the consent order, we saw the following changes in Huntsville, a teacher turnover crisis, privatization of most support services and staff, including the controversial Pinnacle Alternative School. Uh, There was an increase in standardized testing, increased instability of principals, implementation of a one-to-one digital initiative, adoption of new standards uh, called the Alabama College and Career Ready Standards, which are essentially the state's version of Common Core. And those were just some of the changes happening in our schools at around the same time. The teacher turnover crisis created by the actions of Huntsville City Schools uh, and the Alabama State Legislature has negatively impacted the district's ability to fulfill the consent order in a number of areas, such as a lack of qualified applicants to fill vacancies and the discipline challenges that come in schools disproportionately staffed by inexperienced teachers, some of whom are not even certified in the area they're teaching. The district's approach to employee discipline, human resources, and management style was at the time incredibly authoritarian and anti-employee. And while some of these issues i just described may not be directly identified in the consent order, it's important to keep in mind this context in which the order was created and initiated. Because I think that has colored the perception of the consent order uh, um, for a lot of folks. Uh, One of the things that really uh, stuck in my crawl was the initial round of forced employee transfers related to the faculty assignment portion of the consent order, uh, which was done in a way that was, you know, problematic, to say the least. Over 300 educators were forced transferred to new schools all over the city in just one summer. Now, what was the hurry? It was clear to everyone involved that unitary status would not happen anytime soon. I sincerely believe that it wasn't about equity in faculty or the consent order. I think it was a management tactic to bully and destabilize the labor force. Teachers, black and white, had the threat and in many cases the action of a forced transfer hanging over their heads. By using the consent order in this way, it sabotages the process. Rather than a more gradual faculty reassignment plan that got buy-in from the teachers, the district did it this way, disrupting school communities and, of course, alienating the very teachers you need on board to be successful. You know, keep in mind, over the last several years and certainly the time period of the consent orders implementation, Huntsville City Schools has had one of the highest teacher turnover rates in the state of Alabama. So those same consent order goals on faculty assignment could have been achieved through attrition. Again, from my May 2018 letter, the district needs more wraparound services for our students, especially mental health, but also more counselors, social workers, summer programs, and other ways to address the socioeconomic obstacles so many of our students are facing. If we are sincere about equity, this is not optional. Leaders from the city of Huntsville Lined up behind then-Superintendent Wardinsky to support his desegregation plan, a plan largely rejected and modified by the court. I would suggest that the city of Huntsville's leadership should speak their commitment to equity, not with their words, but with their dollars. Additional funding to the school system to provide these much-needed wraparound services is critical to the long-term success of the consent order and the school system overall. Of course, we could go back even further than that. It's worth pointing out the original proposal from Huntsville City Schools in the city of Huntsville, which was backed by most of the white establishment in town. Uh, this proposal ultimately kickstarted the no- negotiations that eventually morphed into the consent order. Among the highlights of Huntsville's proposal, then Superintendent Werdinsky proposed consolidating two mostly black high schools, Butler and J.O. Johnson. It seemed pretty obvious, even to me at the time, just a rank-and-file teacher, that combining the two high schools with the largest number of black students into one nearly all-black high school could hardly count as desegregation, and unsurprisingly, the DOJ and Judge Heikula saw through it as well. I would argue that the district opened negotiations with a bad-faith offer, which ultimately did taint the whole process. Judge Heikulis certainly chastised Wordinsky and the district for their dishonesty in these dealings. Now, you could even go back further than that and look at the history in Huntsville. As local author and historian Jane Deneef pointed out in her 2014 letter to AL.com, much of the city's current downtown from the Von Braun Center to the hospital parking garage rests on top of what used to be black schools, black neighborhoods, and black communities. While it might be unreasonable to expect a school system to undo decades of redlining and displacement, it wouldn't hurt for the folks in charge to at least know some historical context on how things came to be the way they are now. So, what does it take to get out of it? The parties to the lawsuit or consent order have to be in agreement on each of the seven green factors. The school district files for unitary status in court. The various parties and ultimately the judge review the filing, and then the judge issues a ruling to accept it or not. At least in Huntsville's case, I know the school district has tried to work pretty closely with the DOJ to address their concerns prior to actually filing before the judge. Uh, So presumably, if they get to the point where they filed for unitary status, uh, it's probably going to go through or at least shouldn't uh, expect much objection from the DOJ. So, you know, final question would be, why hasn't the district taken those steps yet? Why has the district not achieved unitary status yet? And Huntsville City Schools has filed for unitary status on one of the seven factors, uh, transportation. And, of course, they're not claiming transportation is perfect, but that it meets the court's threshold of unitary status, that transportation does not segregate based on race. I know Huntsville City Schools says they are working on all the other factors, and the lawyers are certainly still getting their billable hours out of this. I can't tell you when the district will file for unitary status on all of these factors, uh, much less if or when the court will grant it. As for why it is taking so long, the school district can point to a number of reasons, you know, some more convincing than others. That it is taking so long can at least in part verify the DOJ and Judge Heikula's findings that there were and are real issues of equity to be addressed. Frankly, that it is taking so long may be an argument in favor of the increased oversight, because it seems obvious to me that if everything had already been up to standard, the district would have long ago filed for unitary status in all of the factors. But to the credit of Huntsville City Schools, they can at least point to their consent order as a real pathway to fulfilling the decades-old desegregation order, and they can point to the commitments already made as real progress. Plenty of other school districts across the South can't say the same. I would encourage Huntsville City Schools to build on that foundation to fulfill not just the letter, but the spirit of the consent order. Positive change typically comes from the bottom up and Huntsville City Schools can remember that by improving transparency, communication and democratic input, by practicing what they preach on equity and by valuing and truly empowering the educators alongside the students, parents and communities they serve.
3: I think that was uh that's some really important context for that because you don't you don't really get a lot of or you don't get really any of of, of that kind of level of, of historical understanding um, in a lot of these other places. And the thing that really sticks out the thing that really sticks out to me is that it, it seems like there is just very little actual control that that the federal government has over the schools, even under this consent order and the desegregation order you know, there's all of these green factors that you mentioned, the seven green factors. Um, they are, they have not met all of those green factors yet. And there's nobody coming in from the government to make them do that. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. It's not like the justice department has like overthrown the superintendent school board because they're going too slow on this. Right. And I mean, I think sometimes to hear people talk about it, it almost comes across that way. Um, so, yes, they they have to go through the court and the DOJ whenever they want to change, you know, which kids attend which school or uh, build a new school. That's all true. But, you know, like you said, the, the extent to which they still have local control is pretty significant. And they're in a an agreement to abide by certain you know benchmarks and to ultimately try to end the desegregation order. And I I think what comes across to me sometimes is they really just wish they, you know, certain folks on the right probably just wish they could get this in front of a Trump-appointed judge who will grant the status without having to do any of the work involved. Right. And the
3: upshot of that is so that they can re (laughs) implement so that they can, I mean, uh, functionally. Right. Reimplement segregation,
0: right? Because what is it that you can't do now? Right. That you are so eager to do that you know you feel is so important that it must be done, but the big bad feds aren't letting you do it right now, you know. And that that's what I'm curious about, and and it's hard for them to ever give you straight answers about that, right? Because you know they don't want to come right out and admit that it has a lot to do with the type of kids that are uh, you know in their kids' school. Mm-hmm. And what they look like, or you know, the ability to m- dole out punishments that we know, research you know states uh, uh, are not effective and are discriminatory, you know. And I, I don't know. I, maybe that's what it is. Maybe they're they're upset because the big bad federal government won't let them expel black kids for saying cuss words in front of their precious little angel, uh, or maybe it's you know because they don't like the fact that there are kids from one side of the town being bussed over to the other side of the town. Um, And and I don't say any of this to dismiss legitimate concerns with the consent order or the way it's been implemented. I mean, obviously, I think I was. um, Yeah, I mean, you were pretty pretty clear about the way that they are.
3: The way that they're implementing disciplinary procedures is like the worst of both worlds and they're and they're placing the blame on the federal government for that they're not really doing any of the real um you know restorative type stuff restorative type disciplinary actions with wraparound services and stuff like that and they're not doing the old school you know beat them up punishment right
0: yeah yeah so it was just about gaming the numbers i mean you know i'll i'll full disclosure i'm not in the loop as much as i used to be it's you know it's been a couple years since i was uh representing employees in huntsville city school so i can't say to what degree they've made improvements in terms of like student discipline uh the code of conduct you know i can't i can't speak to that very well what i can provide is the historical context there uh and i certainly know how it How it was rolled out Hmm. uh, under Werdinsky's leadership. So there are a lot of reasons why people would have legitimate heartburn about this. Right. Um, But, yeah, I I think you still you, you nailed it in terms of the big question is, what is it that you can't do right now that you're so eager to do when the feds aren't looking?
3: And that's something that you should ask, you know, if you're going to these local school board candidates, you know, I mean, and and so we'll we'll go into some more detail about Angela McClure, but she is obviously really interested in getting out from this desegregation order. So if you go to a meet and greet with Angela McClure, you should ask her what it is that she's so eager to do that she doesn't feel like she can do under this desegregation order. That's something that, that would be worth understanding and knowing as you know as a constituent as somebody who maybe has children in Huntsville City Schools um you know what is it that you're wanting to do that you can't do right now um and and that's a that's a good segue into Angela McClure we opened up that historical segment with a clip from McClure on the radio and and we did that because she is running for Huntsville City School Board now um she's in a runoff the only runoff it locally um that we've got versus Andrea Alvarez Alvarez got over twice as much in the first round she was like 60 votes away from winning outright in the first round so probably McClure's not going to win but you know it's worth understanding you know it's worth understanding more about her so Adam you did a deep dive into McClure so can you tell us what her deal is
0: Sure. So, you know, as Jacob mentioned, we've previously covered the August 2022 city elections in Huntsville, um, and that includes the runoff on September 20th. And there is actually a a District 2 city council race between Mm. David Little and Bill Yell, along with the school board seat for District 3 between Andrea Alvarez and Angela McClure. I interviewed Alvarez last month. You can find our full discussion on YouTube where we chatted for about half an hour on various topics, including some important labor relations issues, like teacher turnover and the privatization of support staff. And while I encourage you to give that a listen, today we are talking about her opponent, the bizarre reactionary Angela McClure. Now, as for why McClure is running for school board, well, she told WHNT she's concerned about liberal indoctrination in schools. Unfortunately, no, I'm not kidding. This isn't the first time we've discussed right-wing extremists on this show, and it won't be the last. I admit I prefer to talk about other things, personally. But right-wing extremist ideology permeates the air as thick as the humidity down here. We have to address it because right-wing extremists have real effects upon real people's lives. And normally, I don't like to mix personal with political, especially at the local level. Of course, that doesn't stop it from happening. School board races in Huntsville have been nasty as long as I've been around them. The incumbent for District 3, Elisa Farrell, who came in last place, was associated with David Driscoll, like multiple former school board members. And Driscoll is one of those hired guns who participates in the political dark arts at the local level and was notorious for some of his sleazy campaign tactics. As you'll see, the current contest has had no shortage of sleaze itself. But while I'm turned off by that kind of thing, and I know I'm not alone, I am willing to get a little personal in this discussion of Angela McClure simply because she has chosen to do so herself. And not just with rival candidates, which is, you know, bad enough, sure, but with rank-and-file educators just trying to do their job. And because, frankly, some of the information is enough to make me question this person's fitness for public office. And maybe this person's fitness to operate heavy machinery, be allowed near sharp objects, or to use the internet unsupervised. McClure seems very eager to get into GOP politics, and this is actually her second campaign of 2022, having tried and failed to get elected as a State House representative. In that race, her antics drew mockery from Dale Jackson, local right wing radio shock jock. After being trounced in the State House District 20 race, McClure turned her attention to the technically nonpartisan office of Huntsville School Board, District 3. McClure is one of three right-wing extremists to run for this year's Huntsville School Board elections. All three are apparently tied to a group known as Five Strong, which is reportedly tied to the Mo Brooks family as well as Casey Werdinsky, And these appear to be some of the same folks behind the anti-masking rallies at the school board a while back. I'll admit the details are a little fuzzy here, Uh, As you can imagine, I'm not exactly running around in these same circles. Uh, Trust that this research alone was enough to drive me almost as crazy as McClure seems. McClure really got on my radar back in July when she used a screenshot of an email for fundraising. The email came from a Huntsville City Schools counselor and even included her name, which I won't divulge here. The counselor sent an email to her faculty recommending that staff include their pronouns in their email signature. The counselor said, quote, I am trying to be open and inclusive with my students who prefer other pronouns and let them know I am supportive of them. The counselor then went on to share a quote from an expert supporting this rather innocuous practice. Angela McClure found this so objectionable that she used the email, again with the employee's name, on her campaign social media pages, attempting to raise money. She stated, quote, Our schools should not be a political incubator to indoctrinate our children. Double exclamation point. Pandering this ridiculous liberal agenda has no place in our schools. All of this absurd rhetoric and this cruel doxing of an educator over including pronouns in an email signature. And, uh... Just so y'all know, might be a good time to point out Huntsville City Schools has already been subject to multiple lawsuits in recent years by LGBT students and their families. The idiocy doesn't stop there. In an earlier statement to her supporters, McClure stated, quote, regardless of what educators tell us, socialism is infiltrating our schools and we must put an end to it, close quote. Which, you know, that brings up a lot of thoughts for me. Uh, like, I would love to see Ms. McClure define the word socialism and correctly use it in a sentence. Maybe do a PowerPoint presentation. Uh, McClure told WHNT, we, quote, we must make sure that CRT and SEL curriculum and training do not infiltrate our classrooms and stop age-inappropriate sexual education, close quote. You'll be forgiven for not knowing what the hell she's talking about. For what it's worth, SEL refers to social-emotional learning, which, like critical race theory, has become a scholastic boogeyman among certain segments of the far right. Ironically, in the very same interview where she decries social-emotional learning, she then goes on to state that the schools should be doing more for mental health. I suppose the idea that social-emotional learning might be connected to mental health in schools never occurred to her. Unfortunately, we've seen a wave of reactionary ideologues running for school boards across the country. Poisoned by far-right media consumption and social media cesspools, these wackadoodles are calling for book bans and running campaigns based on fear and hate. They are convinced that public schools are a radical, left-wing, big-government plot to turn Little Johnny into a queer, anti-white America hater. McClure is one of Huntsville's very own contributions to this trend of crazy. Now, one of the more bizarre things to happen during this campaign was when Angela McClure filed a police report on her opponent, Andrea Alvarez apparently accusing her and her campaign of stealing signs and therefore committing theft. Now, to my knowledge, McClure has no actual evidence of any wrongdoing by Alvarez. Apparently, it all stemmed from a Facebook discussion where multiple individuals were reporting that McClure had actually violated the law by placing her campaign signs on public property, including on public school property. There was some back and forth over the city's applicable code and somebody indicated they had removed McClure signs from public school property at the request of the school's front office. McClure thought, you know, despite her own apparent violations of campaign rules, that this ordeal required getting the police involved. That Alvarez deserved to have police question her over some yard signs. Now look, I mean, I'm all for playing hardball in politics But calling the police on your opponent because somebody possibly supporting her may have possibly removed some of your yard signs, yard signs that were probably posted in unlawful areas to begin with. Really? That's a whole nother level of absurdity, but it does seem to track with what we've seen from and heard about Angela McClure. As I mentioned earlier, there's some concerning reports about Angela McClure's character and fitness for office. I've heard claims that she lost custody of at least one of her children for several years, and I've seen unconfirmed court documents that seem to indicate her owing many tens of thousands of dollars in back child support. I've seen allegations that she has filed multiple false DHR reports, and I've seen comments from folks claiming to have horror stories based on their experiences with her in the dog grooming industry. McClure touts that she graduated from Birmingham School of Law with a Juris Doctorate, but curiously, she never touts how many times she's taken the bar exam or whether she's ever passed it. McClure claims to have worked for the White House under President Trump, but sources have told me that the best anyone can tell Her so-called working for the White House consisted of being on Trump's advanced staff team for about a week when he came to Huntsville that one time in 2017. I don't know, you know, maybe she held his umbrella or something. Now, I want to emphasize that I cannot confirm or deny the validity of each of these claims. I'm simply reporting on the chatter surrounding this election. Now might be a good time to go on the record and remind Ms. McClure's campaign that we do still have a First Amendment in this country. Believe me when I say there's a lot I didn't say. So that's the lowdown on Angela McClure, reactionary candidate for Huntsville City Schools Board of Education, District 3. If she were a character in an SNL sketch, I would side-eye the TV and think they were a little too on the nose. But alas, this is our real life and this is a real candidate in an important election. Back on August 23rd, Andrea Alvarez received 48% of the vote while runner-up McClure received 27%. With Alvarez only around 50 or so votes shy of winning outright. So it will be interesting to see how the runoff plays out. The choice could not be more clear. On September 20th, the voters in Southeast Huntsville have a choice between respect and hate. On September 20th, the voters in Southeast Huntsville have a choice between reason and lunacy. On September 20th, the voters of District 3 have a chance to reject right-wing extremism and choose for our students, our educators, and our communities.
3: Poof! Thank you for that. That's pretty wild. <laughs> That's some wild stuff there for sure.
0: Um, uh, quite the character. Definitely, folks, sure.
3: folks. ought to check out uh, Adam's interview with um, with Andrea Alvarez. Some really good stuff there um, for sure. So, we're gonna go ahead and uh, take our final break. Don't go anywhere. We got some good stuff on the other side. You are listening to the Valley Labor Report. <laughs>
5: Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. We have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about our work advocating for customers and join the fight, go to energyalabama.org.
1: There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW 558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW 558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org.
3: North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or DSA North Alabama at Gmail for more information.
4: Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial, working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. O-R-G. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. I'm out.
3: Alabama's only union talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. If you've got anything to add, you can give us a call or send us a text message or participate in our chat on YouTube and Facebook. If you want to call or text, the phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. We got one message over the last break. Hi, friends. Jack from New Jersey here. Two years ago, a nasty summer storm put the power out in my neighborhood for about a week. I never miss a chance to share that it was some amazing Mississippi and Alabama line crews that came up north to put the lights back on. Shout out to your IBEW sponsors and all the other Union line crews. Hell yeah. That's great. Love to hear that. Thank you for... uh, Thanks for that report, Jack. I appreciate it, and thanks for listening. We've got Marissa in the YouTube chat, says, Hello, folks. So happy to find you all after recently moving back to Huntsville after living out of state for two decades. Even the commercials give me hope. Solidarity, y'all. Solidarity to you, Marissa. We appreciate you listening. And, yeah, we've got some really cool sponsors. There are there are dozens of unions in the area, um, and there are... Uh, yeah, I mean, just, just some really, really cool folks doing some really good stuff right here in Huntsville and in the broader, you know, North Alabama uh, areas. So, yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. Good stuff. Um, and we appreciate you listening. Uh, William says there uh, in the YouTube chat, there's a big st- story come out of Rhode Island DHL Teamsters on strike. Fantastic. Confronting the Pigs. We love to see that, folks. Really excited. Um Hope some more good stuff comes out of that. Uh, and this is just a reminder for everybody. Make sure you sign up for the Alabama Troublemakers School. If you're a union member or, uh, you know, somebody who wants to be a union member in the future, wants to organize your workplace, this is really going to be the place to be uh, if you want to do stuff like that. It's going to be on Saturday, October 15th at the University of Montevallo. Um, all day. Going to have... Some really, really awesome and engaging speakers, going to be some practical advice for, you know, 101 organizing type stuff. You're just starting organizing. You want to learn the basics. There's going to be some uh, classes on grievance handling, stuff like that. Mel called in a while back talking about how we need more union resources. Uh, Mel from West Alabama Labor Council talked about how we need more union resources, uh, stewards training, stuff like this that are Cross union um, and labor notes is really doing that on a smaller scale than you know what we used to have, like with the Center for Labor Education and Research. Um, there, there, you know that was a big thing that we used to have in Alabama. Don't have it anymore, but labor notes is doing that on kind of a smaller scale, and they're going to be having an in-person conference in uh, Alabama Saturday, October fifteenth. So definitely sign up. You can go to labornotes.org then go to their events and register for the alabama troublemaker school it's going to be really good
0: and last little bit on that plug i just want to say if you can't attend that's okay you can still help uh if you go on facebook the there's a facebook event and you can click share share it on your feed and you can click share and invite people to the event um folks Somebody, you know, on your friends list uh, is a union member or is interested in being a union member or maybe a community activist. Uh, I know I've had some conversations with some local activists here who are involved in uh, women's rights and civil rights and other issues. So not so much labor focused, uh, but they're interested in, in coming to Labor Notes, making some connections with labor activists and, you know, sharpening organizing skills. So. Uh, anything you can do to get the word out, I think it's important that uh, Labor Notes is coming to Alabama, and I think it's important that Alabama show up, and uh, that we make it worth their time and investment to do so. Mm-hmm. There's going to be folks from the miners, uh, the, stri- the long-time strike in Brookwood. There's going to be updates from Amazon's Bessemer campaign. Uh, just, yeah, it's going to be a great time. And I'm pretty sure october 15th alabama football is not yeah we specifically planned it on a bye week Uh, right so So we get it football's huge here uh i'm about to be missing my my team's game here in a little bit i get it but um september i mean october 15th saturday you don't want to miss it
3: yeah for sure definitely make sure you come out um so uh folks good news the rocket city trash pandas are going to be unionized here soon. That's right, folks. The Major League Baseball Players Association a couple weeks ago sent out authorization cards to minor league players last week as our friends on Means Morning News on Means TV report. Let's play that clip, Adam.
6: And finally, a huge announcement on Sunday that the Major League Baseball Players Association is launching a campaign to organize minor leaguers. Minor league players are among the most exploited in all of sports. They make poverty wages playing baseball and often have to take on second jobs just to make ends meet. Unlike those in the majors, minor league players aren't paid in the offseason despite how much work they put into training. Most of the 5,000 players in the minor leagues make an annual salary less than $15,000. Some make even less than $5,000. Back in April, the organization More Than Baseball released a survey of minor league players and nearly three quarters said their needs were not met by their current salaries and a majority said their teams did not have their best interests in mind. In July, Major League Baseball settled a federal class action suit brought by minor league players who alleged the league was violating overtime compensation and minimum wage laws. The league agreed to pay out $185 million as part of the settlement. And in addition to all of this, Congress is examining Major League Baseball's antitrust exemption and how it might depress players' wages. So it's pretty clear Minor League Baseball is in desperate need of union representation. Advocates for Minor Leaguers was a group that previously worked to advance the interest of the players. As part of this new organizing push, the group has dissolved and just become part Of the mlb players association the previous head of advocates for minor leaguers harry marino said in a press release quote this generation of minor league players has demonstrated an unprecedented ability to address workplace issues with a collective voice joining with the most powerful union in professional sports assures that this voice is heard where it matters most at the bargaining table The Major League Baseball Players Association is now circulating union authorization cards that can be signed by players. Once 30% of minor leaguers do sign on to them, then the union can petition the NLRB to set up an election where just a majority of the players would need to vote for it to join the union. You want to see billionaire sports team owners absolutely melt down? Well, then this is the story to follow.
3: And following it we are, folks, here's an update that came last week from the Washington Post. More than 50%, just like a half a week, it was a a week or half a week after the Major Major League Baseball Players Association, MLBPA, just a very short... Amount of time after they sent out authorization cards, more than 50% of minor leaguers signed those authorization cards in support of unionization under the guidance of the MLB Players Association. The organization announced on Tuesday. As such, the players union asked the Major League Base asked Major League Baseball to voluntarily recognize it as the representative for minor leaguers. The MLB had yet to comment as of Tuesday afternoon, but we've got late breaking news from yesterday. Yesterday, the MLBPA, the Major League Baseball Players Association, announced that uh they announced that the MLB will voluntarily recognize the MLBPA as the uh bargaining representative for the minor league players. So folks we are gonna see union baseball the I mean the Rocket City Trans fandas are unionized, basically. They've got to hammer out this voluntary recognition agreement. And unless something goes crazy, they're going to have a union and they're going to be union. So that's really exciting. And the MLBPA just affiliated with the AFL-CIO. So once the miners officially get unionized, I'm looking forward to welcoming the Rocket City Trash Pandas uh, onto the North Alabama Area Labor Council.
0: That would be awesome. Yep. That would be great. And, and as we were talking you know before we went on air, I think Major League Baseball is doing the savvy thing here by you know voluntarily recognizing the union. Why engage in a protracted, you know ugly labor struggle that you don't have to that you don't have to? Uh, Major League Baseball, they understand that they've you know lost ground in terms of fans and young fans, especially. Uh, to the nfl to the nba and you know i think mlb you know they they can read the tea leaves like anyone else they can see the same gallup polls that we've reported on that over 70 percent of the country approve of unions and unionization so uh you know kudos to the minor league players for organizing kudos to MLBPA for you know taking up this struggle and uh yeah, I'll even give some kudos to the to the league for at least having enough common sense to honor the request of these workers and voluntarily recognize the union. So, looking forward to some union baseball.
3: Absolutely, yeah. I've got my unionized the miners shirt on here, and uh, the Rocket City Trash Pandas. Their last, um, their last uh a uh, week of home games unless they get into the uh unless they get into the playoffs is going to be next week so uh me and my beautiful fiance are going to be going to uh we're going to be going to some of those games or at least one of those games probably not multiple but we'll be going to one of those games and I'll be rocking this shirt supporting the players nice yeah it's going to be a lot of fun i'm looking forward to it um so yeah uh folks we are i have um I've got one more segment, but I don't have quite enough. I don't have quite enough time to um, to really go through my vamp. So I'll just tease it, and maybe we'll talk. We'll talk some more about it next week. But um, but you know, folks, Yellowhammer News is, is like real buddy buddy. I'm not sure actually what their what their official. I don't know what their official um, relationship is with WVNN with the Cumulus station here, um, but. You know, of course, they're really buddy-buddy. And they have only run, they're supposed to be, right, like, a, like an Alabama news outlet. They're supposed to be a news outlet for Alabama, for Alabama citizens, for our culture and our values and our people, right? This is what they're supposed to be. And they have run three articles, three articles on the longest strike in Alabama history, the Warrior Met Cole strike. Down in Brookwood. Three articles and all three of those articles. I checked. I checked yesterday. Every single one of those articles are literally reprints of Warrior Matt Cole press releases. They don't even get comment from the union. And so when they're telling their readers about this story, the only thing that their readers are hearing is from international... Private equity firm owned Warrior Matt Cole. The only thing that their readers are hearing is coming from BlackRock in New York, coming from Yankee Capital, coming from Fidelity in DC, coming from some investment firm in damn Australia. They're not even giving both sides. Here, They're not even letting their readers know what the workers in Alabama, what Alabama coal miners are saying in response to these lies or misrepresentation from the company, from this out-of-state-owned company. Not even giving them that perspective, much less covering it in an objective way, like seeing actually what is happening. Their readers don't know anything about what the workers put up with over five years ago To bring the company out of bankruptcy. They don't know that they're just asking for parity with what they had before. They don't know any of that. Yellowhammer News readers do not know any of that. And I graciously volunteered my services for them. To help their readers understand what is actually going on. And um, I hurt some of their feelings. So that's the teaser and we'll talk about that some more next week. <laughs> but yeah, I hurt their feelings. Their uh, their editor in chief got really sad.
0: Oh no! Yeah. As we're
3: wrapping up here on the radio, just a reminder though: Talman Joseph Smith. The New York Times is investigating the prevalence of wage theft for tipped workers who, in most states, including this one, bosses can legally p- pay below the minimum wa- minimum wage if that subminimum plus tips always equals minimum wage pay. If you've lost money via noncompliance with that law, email talman.smith at nytimes.com. And those tips can be anonymous. That is Smith at nytimes.com. All power to the workers.